it is what's listed on the board. So it was changed. Okay, very good. Romans chapter 6, the verses 1 through 14. Romans chapter 6, the verses 1 through 14. We read this passage in connection with what we confess in Lord's Day 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And following the scripture reading, in response, we will, we will sing Psalm 1. <coughs> Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So far, the reading of God's word.
We'll now turn to Lord's Day 24 of our Heidelberg Catechism. This afternoon, we will consider what we as church confess in this Lord's Day in the light of God's Word. Lord's Day 24, and we'll read that Lord's Day together. Question 62 asks, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? And we answer, because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Question 63, but do our good works earn nothing even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? The answer, this reward is not earned, it is a gift of grace. And finally, question 64, does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? And we answer, no, it is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. So far, the reading from our confession. May God bless the reading of his word, the confession of the church, as well as the proclamation based upon God's holy word. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And these are two tenets, two of the central tenets of the Protestant Reformation, sola gratia and sola fide, to use the Latin terms. So we're not saved by works, we're not saved by some combination of faith and works. It's faith and it's only faith. Now this doctrine has been questioned, and so our catechism takes up that question. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? So if we're not saved by anything that we do, if we can't contribute anything at all to our own salvation, then what's the motivation for living a godly life? If you get something for nothing, then what's the motivation to work? If we don't have to work for what's given to us, then won't that necessarily make us lazy? Won't that make us indifferent? If you believe that salvation is by, is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, won't a person necessarily come to believe that good works are something completely optional in the believer's life? Now, obviously, this is not a new question. And the Apostle Paul faced similar kinds of questions in his ministry, and he responded to these questions in other places as well as in Romans chapter 6. In his letter to the Romans, Paul speaks about the reality of sin. He begins there and its impact on the world. Then he explains how we are made right with God. We're made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's because of his perfect sacrifice made on our behalf. Then he proclaims the glorious results of justification being made right with God. Peace with God, a living and enduring hope, and eternal salvation. But then in Romans chapter 6, Paul's argument takes a turn. 
We're justified in Christ. We've been transformed from being children of Adam to being children of the Lord. But what does that look like in our daily life? And as followers of Christ, what should our lives look like? How should we then live? And as the Apostle Paul begins to move his discussion to the topic of sanctification, our growth in holiness, he anticipates an objection. And as I mentioned, it's not the only time that he's anticipated this objection because there must have been other preachers traveling around the Roman Empire, perhaps even writing letters of their own. They were saying that this Paul, this apostle, was preaching a message that was allowing people to live in sin, to give free reign to their sin. And so they were saying, it seems like, that this message of God's grace would only lead people to give up living a life that's pleasing to God. It would only lead them to sin freely and then sit back and bank on God's grace. So since God is gracious and since God's grace shines through all the more clearly when sin is increased, well, let's go on sinning. Because God's gracious anyway, and we all love to see God's grace and experience it. So that's why Paul asks this question. He knows that some of his readers may have been thinking that very same thing. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Or shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? In other words, shall we remain under the power of sin? Or if you wouldn't put the question in these exact words, perhaps you might ask this question. If God has done everything for us, and if nothing that we can do can even achieve the slightest bit towards our salvation, then why even bother making an effort to live a good life? If a wicked person can be justified just as much as a righteous person can, why bother? Why subject myself to obedience? Why make life difficult when I can sin my life away and then I can count on God being gracious to me? Because after all, Paul's detractors might point out to the fact that in chapter 4 of Romans, he had written that to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is, just, is credited as righteousness. So there you have it, to the man who does not work. You don't have to work. Just trust God. Be unrighteous. You can't be righteous anyways. And then God will justify you as long as you have faith. So really, it's no wonder that this kind of objection was coming up. Whenever, and that's because whenever God's grace is preached as strongly as it should be, it's almost inevitable that these sorts of accusations will be brought forward. But in verse 2 of chapter 6, Paul answers the question with the strongest possible negative in the Greek language. It's translated as, by no means. But we can also trans translate it as, God forbid. It means absolutely not. So the objection that we should sin, that grace may abound, is absolutely unfounded, Paul says. And then he goes on to explain why this is so. And he explains it in terms of death and resurrection. 
When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're grafted into him by baptism, we're buried with him. We're united with him in his death. Union with Christ being so central. So united to him in his death. That means that we have died, Christ's people, God's people, have died to sin. So you can't put it any stronger than that. If you've died to sin, that means you simply cannot live in sin any longer. So there's no way. And so we've died with Christ. We've been crucified with Him. But we know that the story of Christ doesn't end with His crucifixion. And that means that since we are united to Him, our story doesn't end there either. So having been united to Christ in His death, we're also, thanks be to God, united with Him in His resurrection. So Christ was raised from the dead. Death had no hold on Him. And He died that death once and for all, and the life that He now lives, and He he lives reigning to the glory of the Father. And so we're united, we're grafted in, We are one with Christ, not only in His death, but also in His resurrection. So we've died to sin, dying in Christ, but now we're alive to God, living in Christ. So that's the new condition that we've been brought into as God's people. And that means that there's been a radical change to our nature. A death to life, darkness to light kind of change. A change from being in Adam to being in Christ. And so that means that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. Now, if you know a bit of English grammar, you might know about indicative sentences and imperative sentences. Indicative sentences tell us how things are. They state a fact. So you could say there's a chair over there. That is an indicative sentence. It just tells you a fact, a chair is there. But then there's also an imperative sentence. So if you speak in the imperative, you're telling someone what it is that they have to do. So you don't just say, there's a chair over there, but you say, you must go sit in that chair. So that's the indicative and the imperative. And when we study God's Word, and when we study God's Word with an eye to learning how God wants us to live, there's always that indicative and the imperative. And one of the best-known examples is found in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2, the verses 12 and 13. And there he writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there you have that imperative statement, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But the the thing that we really need to take special note of is the indicative statement that follows. Because he says, and he adds, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So there's the indicative. 
Now, if there were just an imperative there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, just the imperative, you would think that Paul is simply telling us that we need to work in order to earn salvation. But then he adds that indicative so that we can know that it's not actually us who's doing the work. It's God who's working in us. So when you separate the indicative from the imperative in Scripture, you're actually treading on dangerous ground because false teaching is just lurking right there around the corner waiting to bite you. Now in Scripture, the the imperative, the command, always flows from the indicative, the statement about how things are. And that's exactly the format that the Apostle Paul uses here in Romans chapter 6. So he's giving us the indicative. He's telling us the truth in a certain way as if he had said, that's a chair over there. His indicative statement is this. You have died to sin. You have been raised with Christ and now you live to God, to His glory. So that's the way things are, period, full stop. That's the end of the story. As people who have put their trust in Christ, those are the facts. And there's no disputing the facts. You have been freed from sin. You have been made alive. But then following that indicative, there's something more. And there's that imperative. And in verse 11 of Romans chapter 6, Paul begins with that imperative. And it's worth noting that these imperatives are the first imperatives that the Apostle Paul uses in the entire book of Romans, in the entire letter to the Romans. So in the first five and a half chapters, really, there are no imperatives. Paul doesn't begin by teaching the Roman Christians, by teaching us how we must live. And that's an important message for us because it also says something to us about what the gospel message is all about. If Paul could go just about six chapters in a letter without telling Christians how to live and how to direct their lives, how then should we proclaim the gospel message in our families, to our friends, in our outreach, to our neighbors, and in our communities? There's an important lesson for us there. Because now, finally, Paul comes to the imperatives, to the commands that he has for believers. Having been justified, having been put into a right relationship with God, now here is how you must live. And we also need to take note of the shape that Paul's imperative takes. Because he doesn't give a list. He doesn't give a list of do this, don't do that. It's not like, okay, you're a Christian now, so don't use bad language. Don't go to those kind of movies. Don't watch those kinds of shows on television. Don't listen to that kind of music. Don't wear those kinds of clothing. Don't drink that. Don't eat that. Don't do this on Sundays. Don't forget to do your daily devotions and now be on your way. Now, the imperative based upon the indicative is a command based on a statement of fact. And that imperative is in verse 11. 
The imperative, Paul says, that we must count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we need to consider ourselves, to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And when he says that, reckon yourself or consider yourself, he's using the same word that he used in Romans 4 when when he said that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Paul's first command to Christ's followers is this, know who you are. Know what you have become. Know, fully realize, fully understand, consider it to be the absolute undoubted truth. You are dead to sin and you are alive in Christ. That's Paul's command. What it comes down to is as simple as this. What Paul is telling his readers, what the Holy Spirit is telling us through Paul, what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism is this. We need to remember who we are. So you must remember, brothers and sisters, that you have been delivered from the realm of sin. You've been brought in to the realm of grace. Your position has been radically changed and it's impossible to live in both of those realms at the same time. So remember, reckon yourself, consider yourself, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, as a result of that, as Paul writes in verse 12, because you have been so radically changed, Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer yourselves in sin or to sin as instruments of wickedness, but instead offer yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. But how is that possible? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question in verse 11. Because he says that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's possible, but it's only possible in Christ Jesus. It's not possible in and of ourselves. And then he clarifies how this is possible in verse 14. And he tells us that sin is not going to be our master. Because we're not under law, but we're under grace. Now there have been some groups of Christians, and still are, who claim that believers can achieve some kind of sinless perfection in their lives. I'm sure we all know from our own personal experience, but even more importantly, we know from the testimony of Scripture, like Paul's words in Romans 7, that this is far from the truth. In the third chapter of his first letter, John writes this. He says, no one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. And he also says, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So we do hear things like that, messages like that in Scripture. But John isn't talking about some kind of sinless perfection, some moral perfection in this life. And we can see that very clearly in 1 John chapter 1. Because he also writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we're not talking here about sinless perfection. Throughout our lives, 
even as people who have been made righteous in Christ, united to him by faith and in him righteous before God, we continue to be affected by sin. So what does Paul mean when he says that we must consider ourselves to be dead to sin? Is he talking about some kind of fiction? Is this some kind of power of positive thinking? We're supposed to lie to ourselves and then we're supposed to use positive thoughts to to help us to live righteously and to avoid sin? Is that what he's doing? If we fall into sin in our Christian lives, and we all do fall into sin in our Christian lives, aren't we actually showing that we're not dead to sin, really? Now, it might sound like the kind of advice that you might want to give to someone who, for example, is trying to lose weight. Count yourself dead to hunger And then you don't have to worry about eating so much. Of course, you're still hungry. Of course, your stomach is still making those little noises, or at least you're imagining that it is. Of course, that delicious bag of potato chips is still calling to you from the cupboard. But if you tell yourself often enough that you're really not hungry, then you can conquer those cravings. Count yourselves dead to hunger. So that's kind of like a mind game that you might play with yourself. Think positive. Tell yourself a lie often enough, and sooner or later you will convince yourself that it's true. But when Paul says, count yourself, consider yourself dead to sin, that's not what he's doing here. He's not trying to get us to believe a lie. He's not trying to to get us to convince ourselves of something that isn't true in order that we might live a better life before God. He's not telling us certainly that we should use our positive thoughts to bring about positive results in our lives, regardless of whether these thoughts are true or not. He's telling us that we must understand and that we must realize what is true about us in Jesus Christ. We need to realize the truth about what has happened to us. So there has been a fundamental change in our relationship to sin. We need to understand that. We need to live in that knowledge. Sin is no longer a power that controls us. We can no longer be under the power of sin, under the dominion of sin, if we are slaves of Christ. And so as people who are united to Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection, sin is no longer the internal force that controls us. The power of sin no longer reigns in our lives. It's been broken. We're now confronted in our lives with choices that are very real. We are no longer in the position that unbelievers are in. People who have not put their trust in Jesus Christ live under the control of sin. Sin lives within them and they live to sin. But for us, Christ is now in us and we are in Him. His power is the power that controls our lives and sin is something that doesn't attack us from that point, like it it attacks an unbeliever, but it attacks us from without. And so Paul simply says, understand this fact, brothers and sisters, sin no longer has control over you. 
This is a fact. This is not some kind of futile attempt to avoid reality. So when you're tempted, remember that the sin that's tempting you has no control over you. When you're tempted by lust, remember who you are in Christ. When you're tempted by greed, remember who you are in Christ. When you're tempted to lash out in unrighteous anger, remember who you are in Christ. None of these things has control over you. John writes again, to quote John again in his first letter, chapter 4, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. So sin isn't our master anymore, so when we fall into sin, we're not living according to what we actually are. We're not living as people who have been freed from sin and made alive to righteousness. Now, of course, sin still has power in our lives. Sin still tempts us, still at war with us. It still tries to defeat us, to lead us off the path of righteousness and holiness. But in Jesus Christ, the power of sin has been broken. In order for us to live lives that are pleasing to God, to the God who has saved us, we must realize this. We need to live in that reality. All of this was made possible by Christ's death and His resurrection, and all of this is possible only if we are united to Christ in these things. In order for Jesus Christ to be alive to God, He had to die. And now in order for us to be alive to God, we must also die every day. We need to die to our selfish desires. We need to die to the lusts of the flesh. We need to die to our self-centeredness, our tendency to believe that we, our needs, our wants, our desires are the center of all things and that the world revolves around us. Francis Schaeffer said this, the death isn't the important thing. The being alive to God is the important thing. But if I'm going to be alive to God, there first must be a death. Now this is sanctification. This is our continued growth in holiness, in godliness. This is a process that means that our life is a constant battle. It's a battle that's not going to be completed until we go to be with our Lord for all eternity. And this is what our catechism will go on to speak about in Lord's Day 33, the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new nature. And that's that process of sanctification. And that means that we grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin. More and more we hate it. We flee from it. That's the dying of the old nature. And then we have a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. So that's that coming to life of the new nature. But in order for that new nature to come to life, that old nature needs to die. And when Paul tells us not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies so that we obey its evil desires, he's telling us something that's only possible in Christ. So this isn't an act of the will. This isn't a matter of willpower of mind over matter. This is not something we can do on our own. 
Only in Christ can we put to death these old desires, these sins. And only in Christ can we delight in living a life that is pleasing to God in all good works. We will still fail. But when we fail, when we fall, we won't remain where we've fallen. We'll be able to stand up again. We'll be able to seek forgiveness again. We'll be able to dedicate ourselves once again wholeheartedly to serving God, to living for Him, to living only for Him, because we know that Christ has died and we have died with Him. And also that Christ lives and we have been given new life in Him. We've been given freedom. We've been given all of these things to the glory of God and to the praise of His name. And so we seek to live a life of obedience. And we seek to obey in gratitude to God. Our obedience is a response. We hear God's law every Sunday. He gives that law to us as His people after delivering us. He did that under the Old Covenant. We hear that in the preamble to the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And therefore, you shall have no other gods before me, etc. So we don't obey in order to receive. We have received and therefore we obey. We can't give a gift of obedience to God and expect to be repaid because He is God. And we are humans. Romans 11, verse 36, makes God's overwhelming work in every area very clear. All things are from Him. All things are through Him. All things are to Him. He is the origin. He is the worker. And He is the goal. He is God. And brothers and sisters, that's why this doctrine that we confess, this doctrine of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, when that doctrine is properly taught and properly understood, it can never lead believers to become careless or wicked. Because God is at work in those who believe, in us who believe. He worked faith in us. He is strengthening that faith within us. He is growing that faith within us. And He is also producing the fruits of faith that we show in this life. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love Him not just in words, but also in deeds. Not just by saying, Lord, Lord, but also by doing what He commands. Doing the will of the Heavenly Father. Whatever you do, do it with all your might and do it for His glory, soli Deo Gloria, because that's why we're here. May this teaching make us careful and may it also lead us to grow in righteousness. Amen. Let's now respond to the word that we've heard by singing hymn 28, the stanzas 1 through 4.